Well, will you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2? 1 Peter chapter 2. And we want everybody to be able to follow along. So these uh, gentlemen have some Bibles. Get their attention. If you need a Bible that is marked already to 1 Peter chapter 2, as we continue our series, the title of which is on the screen, Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. For most of human history, the dominant view of the role of government could be summarized with uh, four words that we're going to display on the screen. Now that idea that the king is law was based on the notion of something called the divine right of kings. And the idea of divine right of kings was there is no law above the king. And in the year 1644, there was an extremely influential book that was published. It was written by a Scottish Presbyterian minister by the name of Samuel Rutherford. The title of that book in Latin was Lex Rex. And instead of the king is law, Lex Rex means the law is king. Now, why do we care about this? Well, as citizens of the United States, we should care because... That notion had great influence on our founders, and it actually made its way into our Constitution, that this new nation would be a nation governed by laws rather than than men, that the ultimate rule would be that of law rather than of men. And so our Constitution says the Constitution will be the supreme law of the land rather than any particular person or persons. And so the idea then is that we can have law without a human king. But even if we don't have a king who can easily and most often in history has become a despot who rules in a tyrannical way and sometimes whimsical way, even if not a king, those in power, even in a government such as ours where we have a constitution and the law is king, those who are placed by that constitution in positions of power must be restrained. And so we were very blessed to have at the time of the founding of our country a number of men who understood that because they understood the nature of humanity and therefore the kind of government that on the one hand could function efficiently but also keep in check the sinful desires of those that are governed and those doing the governing. James Madison, the principal author of our Constitution, said in one of 78 papers that he and two other persons, uh, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison, they put out a number of papers, 78 of them in the year 1787 and 1788 just as the Constitution was being ratified and considered, considering the nature of government and what it should be like. And in the 51st of those 78 papers, Federalist number 51, James Madison said this, What is government but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. And if angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. Ah, 
Here's a guy who understood human nature. And as a result, they devised a system and drafted a constitution that is now just 224 years old. And in it, they had a series of checks and balances. So that constitution is the supreme law of the land, but it identifies folks to govern in that system, and those folks need to be checked and restrained. They understood that because they understood human nature. But that constitution is only 224 years old, and for millennia before that, it was the king who was the law in the day-to-day lives of the citizenry with little or no checks on his power. Now, I give you all of that, not because we're going to have a history lesson or a test afterwards, but because we need to understand that although we are immersed in the most marvelous system of government that humans have ever devised, your New Testament was written at a very different time. The New Testament was written in a time and under a government in which the king was essentially the law. And the question was, do Christians who owe their allegiance to their God and King Jesus, do they have an obligation to obey human rulers? You may recall when Jesus walked the earth, he was confronted with that question by his detractors. And so he was asked, is it right to pay tax to Caesar or not? And Jesus answered in a most profound way. Is it right to pay tax to Caesar or not? Jesus answered, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. So Jesus is saying that it is right to give to Caesar the government, the ruler, the taxes that we owe. And we'll see that further supported in other Scripture in just a moment. But what about them being evil rulers? What if the one who is acting as Caesar? What if those in power are evil rulers? Am I obligated to obey them and pay taxes to them? Romans 13 in your Bible answers that question, where we're told, pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. Now, when that was written, you surely had an evil emperor because the emperor was none other than Nero. And Nero, who I described at the beginning of this series in 1 Peter, was certifiably insane. He had uh, wood, torch, the city of Rome, and he would blame Christians for that, and Christians would be persecuted as a result. And it is Nero who is the emperor at the time that Paul wrote those words in Romans chapter 13. And it was Nero who was the emperor when Peter wrote the words that we're going to consider today in chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Now, we're going to see that this command by Peter is tied to our purpose as believers in a fallen world to bring glory to God as we live as his ambassadors in his world. Let's ask God to help us then as we look at his instruction for how we as citizens of our government 
live as lights in darkness. Our Father, we thank you for the instruction of your word. And we thank you that the instruction of your word is practical, applicable to the issues that we face in our daily lives. Lord, we live in a system of laws, and we live under, comparatively speaking, a marvelous government. But it can become onerous, and it can require us to participate in things that are objectionable to us. And so we need direction, and we thank you that that direction comes to us from your word. Help us to apply accurately what you have told us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, each week we insert in your program uh, an outline for you to follow along as we look at the passage under consideration. And so if you don't already have that out, I encourage you to take a look at that outline. Where in this passage, 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 13, we're going to see that God commands us to submit. And I say there, God commands us to submit because. So we're going to look at some of the reasons that God commands this submission to government and in other relationships as well. But before we look at the reasons that God requires us to submit, let's make sure that we have a good understanding of what it means to submit in general. The word submit itself means to place under. To place under. So when you see that prefix, sub, affixed to another word, it means under. So submarine is underwater. Subway means lunch, or means, <laughs> means under the road. And when it's in the context of a superior subject relationship, then submit means to place oneself under the authority of the one in leadership in that relationship. And so we place ourselves under the government, according to verse 13, and we place ourselves under our employers in yet another relationship, according to verse 18. Notice what verse 18 says. Slaves in reverent fear of God submit yourselves to your masters. Now, we'll consider that passage next week, but its application to us is in the form in our day of employees' responsibility to employers. So there is placing ourselves under the authority of the government, verse 13, placing ourselves under the authority of our employers, verse 18, but then it goes into domestic home relationships as well, beginning in chapter 3, where wives place themselves under the leadership of their husbands, and we will look at that in, in two weeks. But verse 1 of chapter 3 says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. So that's what submit means, to place ourselves under authority when there is a superior subject relationship, under the authority of the government, under the authority of an employer, under the authority of the leader of the home. We're going to see that there are some things that submission does not mean, and we'll see that a bit later. But now let's ask ourselves the question, why is it necessary for God to command us to submit, and to submit not just in one realm, but in several? Government, employment, in the home. And so I say in that first point in your outline, God commands us to submit for a number of reasons. The first of those is this, because we are fallen. God commands us to submit because we are fallen, and we're going to look at 
how that fallenness manifests itself in our relationships such that we are resistant to this idea of making ourselves subject to, submitting to. But God has to command it and therefore does through the pen of Peter because we are, we are fallen. Back in verse 11, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at these two transition verses, verses 11 and 12, as Peter makes a transition from describing who we are in our position and relationship with Christ to now what we are to do because of that relationship. And in those verses, verses 11 and 12, he tells us to live such good lives, verse 11, among the pagans. It tells us that in verse 11 that as we do this, we are to abstain. You see verse 11? Abstain from sinful desires which war against your souls. Now we saw then and last week we expanded on this notion of sinful desires. Internal desires that lead us into sinful attitudes, thoughts, words, and actions. And Peter says, as people who have the standing that I've described for you in the first chapter and a half of this letter, now you're to live a particular way. And in living that way, it's going to be necessary for you to analyze the desires that you foster within you because those will surely come out in your behavior. Abstain from sinful desires. And God has to command us then to submit. Because we're fallen, and I say in your outline, we have misdirected desires. So if you were here the last couple of weeks, as we looked at verse 11 and then expanded on this notion of the Bible's teaching about desires and their influence on our thoughts and words and actions from Galatians 5, you know that we define these sinful desires as that very thing, misdirected desires, desires now that instead of being directed toward God and others, loving God and loving others are directed toward ourselves. And one of those sinful desires is the desire for autonomy. Now, autonomy means, literally means, self-law, self-rule. And so in verse 11, we are told if we're going to live in a way consistent with who we are as Christians, we're going to have to abstain from sinful desires, and God now has to command us to submit because it is contrary to our selfish, misdirected desires for us to subject ourselves to anyone. So why does God have to command this? Because we're fallen. And that fallenness is seen in our misdirected desires, our desire for autonomy, self-rule, self-law. And that desire for autonomy, to rule ourselves without any interference, frankly, in our natural state, before coming to Christ, we didn't even want any interference from God. That desire has a long and inglorious history. It goes all the way back, ultimately, to our parents, Adam and Eve. You'll recall that their desire for autonomy was what appealed to them as the serpent tempted them when he said, you will be like God. And the one who told them that, Satan, in the form of this serpent, had already attempted a heavenly coup against God's authority when he said, according to the prophet Isaiah, I will raise my throne above the stars. 
I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. So why do we have to be commanded to submit? Because it is contrary to our nature. We are fallen and we have misdirected desires, desires for self-rule, self-law, autonomy. And that's why in verse 16, Peter says, Live us as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Do not use it, as we will see, as an excuse not to submit to those who are placed over you. Dear friends, if you are someone who cannot place yourself under the authority of another, that is a deep spiritual problem. God throughout Scripture commands us to be people of humility and people of trust in God such that we can place ourselves under those who He has placed over us. And yet, because of our misdirected desires, that is very difficult for most of us to do. And for some of us, it is such a problem that it's virtually impossible for us to do. I have met people who have said, I simply cannot work for someone else. Now, those of you who are entrepreneurs and proprietors of your own business, I congratulate you, and I I mean that. I admire people who have the ingenuity and the initiative to do that. And I hope the Lord blesses your, your business. But none of us should ever have the attitude that I can only work for myself. Because that betrays an attitude of rebellion, autonomy, that says I can't be under the authority of anyone else. I've met people like this. When you work in a public uh, endeavor, public ministry, you meet lots of people over a lot of years. And I've met a number of people over the years who fit in that category. Can't work for anybody else. And the interesting thing is they then have their own business and therefore love their business because they're in charge, which is all good. But then when they get in another realm, whether it be in the church or any other realm, they have an extremely difficult time now submitting when someone else or someone else are in charge. And if we cannot follow, we are not fit to lead. All of us must have the attitude that is requisite to obey the requirement that God gives us to be willing to submit and to submit in various realms. And Peter gives us the three I've mentioned in government, in employment, and in the home. One other point before we move on on that. When we place ourselves under the authority of another in whatever superior subject relationship we are in, understand that we don't submit only when we agree, right? I mean, think about that for a minute. And I've heard people say this, well, you know, I submit when he's right. Well, if you submit only when you agree, then what's the need for the command to submit? Submission anticipates disagreement and therefore the need for someone who's in authority to then impose what needs to happen and those who are subject to that authority to submit to it. And so God commands that we submit because we are fallen. We have misdirected desires, and I say in your outline, secondly, we have misplaced focus. Misplaced focus. Remember, 
that this command to submit to the government next week to our employers, the following week in our homes, these are some of the ways that the commands of verses 11 and 12 are obeyed. And again, I call your attention back to verses 11 and 12. Take a look at at that. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. And so I hear I say we have misplaced focus. And here's why. Verse 11 says, here's how you're to live in general. As foreigners and exiles, abstaining from sinful desires, living such good lives among the pagans. And now I, Peter, am going to give you concrete ways that that plays itself out. The first of those is in submission to government, even a bad one. And I say, we have a hard time with this, and therefore God has to command it because we have misplaced focus. What do I mean? Verse 11 says, you're going to live this way because here's who you are, foreigners and exiles. And if we don't have that focus, that we're just passing through, then the government and how it functions and whether or not I agree with it And whether or not America in 10 years is going to be what America was 10 years ago is going to mean much more to me than it should. We have misplaced focus. If we fail to see ourselves as passing through, we will become too tied to the here and now. And if we are honest, dear friends, that tie to the here and now entangles us so easily. Many of you know Pastor David Dorn from Inner City Baptist Church, and you know that this past, uh, this past year uh, his son was involved in a very serious automobile accident on I-75. He was struck by a semi-truck. And the way it all happened and the way it all went down it's just absolutely amazing that not only did he not die, but his injuries are almost completely healed now. And he's going to be able to function fully, thanks be to God. God spared him. But Pastor Dorn tells the story of all of the well-wishers and thankful Christian friends who wrote to him and his family as it became clear that Derek was going to, to heal. And he says, you know, one of the things that struck me was how many Christian people said, Oh, I'm so glad that God spared him. It would have been so tragic for him to miss uh, his graduation or to not be able to marry and to have children. He had his whole life ahead of him. And Pastor Dorn said, you know, I understand that and I appreciate that sentiment. I know from whence it comes. But we really are too tied to this earth. Derek knows Jesus. If Derek had died, Derek would have gone immediately to heaven. From the pavement of I-75 to the presence of Jesus Christ. Much better than any graduation or marriage. I mean, almost. Kimmy's in here. (laughs) Or anything else that we will experience. If we fail to see ourselves as just passing through, we will become too tied 
to the current circumstances and to the current political arrangement. The Bible teaches that we are people looking for a new city with a new government ruled by a new king. And so why does God command us to submit? We're fallen. We have misdirected desires. We have misplaced focus. I say thirdly, we have misaligned loyalties. Misaligned loyalties. Now look, I could have called this message the confessions of a former political junkie as I talk about government stuff. And those of you who know me may say, former? (laughs) So I have been and still am, but to a much lesser extent, interested in government, its function, politics, and so on. And because of that, I can say this, not only about many of us, many of you, I can say it about myself as well. It is so easy for us to have misplaced loyalties. Our loyalties are to America. And we need to understand, dear friends, America is not God's chosen nation. I know that sounds heretical. It's true. America is not God's chosen nation. It is not clear that America will be around, I don't know, when Jesus returns. There is nothing said in Scripture about the role of America in God's final program. I am deeply thankful for this country and its form of government, as I've stated. But I need to understand that my loyalties are not first to America. And our loyalties as Christians are are not first to old glory, but to God's glory. And one of the reasons that God has to remind us and command us, submit to the government, even when it's a government you don't agree with, and there are many in this room that do not agree profoundly with the current government we have now. We need to be reminded, God says, submit to Nero. We need to be reminded because we're fallen and the misdirected desires, misplaced focus, misaligned loyalties. And then fourthly, because we have misguided examples. We love to follow the rebel who becomes a hero. I mean, think about our movies. Rambo. You know, and he just gets even with everybody. He just takes them all on. Right? Or, now I'm really showing my, I already showed my age with that. But, you know, Norma Ray. you know, she just stands up and shows management who's boss, and we're going to take over this place, okay? Or, you know, Americans love a good tea party. Let him who has ears hear. A good rebellion. Just tell the king what he can do with his tax. And we glorify rebellion with misguided examples. And I am simply saying to you, as I say to myself, dear friends, let us think about those things in light of what God says. It was Jesus himself who sheathed Peter's sword. Remember when Peter drew his sword Jesus said, you hold back. My kingdom is not of this world. It was Jesus who tamed the subversive 
desires of one of his first followers. One of his first followers was a guy named Simon the Zealot. And the Zealot, the Zealots, was a political party. And Simon was a part of that. He was part of a movement. He was part of a rebellion movement against the Roman government. The Zealots were assassins. And they were ready to kill government officials. And Jesus calls Simon the Zealot, and he calls Matthew the Roman tax collector to be part of the same band. So we need to be commanded, and God so commands us because we are fallen. And those are just some of the ways that that fallenness shows itself vis-a-vis our government and our view of it. But also because, I say in your outline, not only because we are fearful, but because, or excuse me, fallen, but because we are fearful. We are fallen, and B, we are fearful. Now, what I mean by fearful, you could put next to that vulnerable. Because each of these commands to submit is given to those that are in the vulnerable position in a superior subject relationship. And so the command is to the citizens who can be abused by the government. Submit. The command is to slaves who can be abused by their masters. Submit. The command is to wives who can be abused by their husbands. Submit. And so God has to tell us this because we often find ourselves in vulnerable positions where it is very difficult for us to submit. And God does not, in these commands, interestingly, seek to balance anything he says through the pen of Peter. Submit to Nero, submit to your masters, submit to your your husbands. And he does not go on to say, you know, and, you know, government, this is what you should do, and masters, you should be good to your, your slaves. He does that in other passages, but not in this one. We are vulnerable, and the commands are directly to the vulnerable. Now, we're going to look at, quickly, the verses themselves, verses 13 through 17. But I want us to understand, friends, that government is a gift, even a bad government, is a gift of God's common grace as it restrains the sinful impulses of men and women. Even a bad government is a gift of God's grace. And as Christians who are taught that in God's Word, we need to be very careful about demeaning the gift that God has given to protect us even when we don't like the particular form of the gift. It is a good thing to have police officers stationed along the road to keep people like you and me going the speed limit. You know why? Because I wouldn't and you wouldn't. It's a good thing. It's a gift of God's common grace. And so we call them speed what? Traps. You know, we got these guys out there just ready to pounce on us like they're the enemy. And and I'm telling you, from a biblical standpoint, understanding human sinful nature, that it needs to be appropriately restrained, let us not talk negatively about those that God has given to protect us, even from ourselves. It is a good thing, even if a hassle, 
to have a TSA and Homeland Security. And when you go through a checkpoint and it's a big fat hassle, there are people who are looking to do evil in this fallen world. So God commands us to submit because we're fallen, fearful. And God's command to submit is these things that I have listed in your outline. It is, first of all, forthright. God's command for us to submit is forthright. Again, verse 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him, to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. I say it's forthright for this reason because there are no exceptions given. Now, we're going to see in just a bit there are exceptions given elsewhere in Scripture to our obedience to the government. There are times when we are to disobey what a government says. We'll see that in a moment. But Peter doesn't deal with the exceptions here. He just says straight up, forthright, submit. And submit to each type of government. This was a really lousy government under Nero. Submit to, he tells us in verse 14, to various levels of government, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to those who are appointed by him. So submit to all types of government and to at all levels of government. And it was not just Peter who says this very thing. The Apostle Paul in Romans 13 said this, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. He goes on to say, The one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. And just incidentally, when it says at the end there, the ruler bears the sword for a reason, does not bear it for no reason. That's a reference to the legitimacy of capital punishment for capital crimes. So God's command to submit is straightforward. Through the pen of Peter, he makes no exceptions. We'll see the exceptions elsewhere in Scripture in just a bit. But what Peter is telling us to do is don't first think about all the exceptions. Think about the fact that God has given even bad government for our good. And be people of humility and trust in God such that we are willing and able to submit. God's command is forthright. It is also, secondly, purposeful. Purposeful. Why does God give this command? The reason is given in verse 15. For, because, it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. You see, this is to be done, going back to verse 13, for the Lord's sake. And now, for the Lord's sake, because it has benefit to the Lord and His reputation, verse 15 tells us how so. It'll silence the ignorant talk of foolish people by you doing this good thing of submitting to the government. Now, what kind of ignorant talk might foolish people have been saying? Christians have another king, King Jesus. 
they don't want to and are unwilling to follow the emperor and his appointed governors. And Peter is saying, in order for us to achieve our objective of living, verse 12, such good lives among the pagans, that they see our good works and they glorify our Father on the day that he visits us, in order for that to happen, one of the things that's going to have to happen is that we be people who show that even though we're citizens of heaven, we are still willing to submit to human rulers. God's command is forthright, and it has this evangelistic purpose noted first in verse 12. Thirdly, God's command is confined, confined, restrained. That is, even though through Peter he makes no exceptions, elsewhere in Scripture God does limit the submission that we're to render. There are times where we are not to submit to the government. In verse 16, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So verse 16 is noting that we are indeed free people. And the truth of the matter is, if King Jesus wanted to come now and establish his kingdom, he could do that. And we are free from the power of sin so that we can be the kind of citizens who don't need the kind of restraint that sinful people need. Limited government requires a moral citizenry, and we are free from the power of sin, and thus are that moral citizenry, but that's always a minority. Did you know that? People who have been freed from the power of sin. Back when I graduated from high school and first thought about trying to go into politics, there was a group called the Moral Majority. Anybody remember that? But the the Moral Majority, defined in Christian terms, was never a majority. Christians are Christians, true, born-again, regenerated Christians who have been freed from the power of sin, are a minority and will be a minority until Jesus comes. Now, if our country was filled with a majority of people like that, then there would not be the kind of need, a la what Madison said, for government restraint. But do not use that fact that I don't need it, it's these other people who need it, as a cover-up for evil, Peter is saying in verse 16. So obey it, but it is to be still confined, because at the end of verse 16, you are ultimately living as God's slaves as God's slaves. And all of this submission back to verse 13 is ultimately for the Lord's sake. So what are those exceptions? If the government asks us to engage in something that is directly contrary to what God has said in His Word, we must refuse. If the government refuses to allow us to do something that God commands us to do, then we must refuse. If the government says we cannot meet and worship him, we will still meet and worship him because he says to. We see examples of this kind of thing in Scripture. The apostles were commanded not to preach the gospel, but they defied that command. 
In Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, they say famously, we must obey God rather than man in that circumstance. Now, what about times when our connection to something that we find disagreeable is more attenuated, that is, less direct, further removed from us? Our tax money is going toward something that we find objectionable. We're not being told to participate directly in it. We're not being told to do it, but indirectly. What about that? Respectful appeal to authority is always legitimate. And we see examples of that in Scripture as well. The great Apostle Paul, for no other offense than preaching the gospel, you all know if you've read through the fifth book of your New Testament, the book of Acts, that he was arrested and he was beaten and he was flogged a number of times by authorities. On one such occasion, he was brought before the Roman governor Festus in Acts chapter 25. Festus took him to King Agrippa. And, and Paul, if you read what his discourse with them in those two chapters, chapters 25 and chapter 26 of the book of Acts, note how respectfully he addresses them, even though he's being wrongfully held and accused. And then he says to them, I appeal to Caesar. And the book of Acts ends with Paul in the city of Rome, awaiting his opportunity before Caesar. Respectful appeal is always appropriate. And by the way, Paul's appeals ultimately failed, didn't they? He was martyred for the cause of Jesus. Now, while we as a church strive very hard to avoid partisanship, because we do not want to be known as the Democrat church or the Republican church or the Libertarian church, we will take a stand on moral issues that have become a part of political discourse. And we can and should seek to use our influence in order to respectfully appeal to our government. So as a for instance, the Bible, we are convinced, teaches that all life is precious because all life is in the image of God. And therefore, we do not have the right to take upon ourselves to end a life that God has given outside of that individual having taken a life that God has given. That's capital punishment. So we cannot take innocent, innocent human life. Therefore, we believe abortion is a travesty and a scourge upon our nation. And you heard me talk about that as well as I could back in January on Sanctity of Life Sunday. But I say that for this reason. We are going to offer you opportunity to appeal to, respectfully appeal to our government. We have a health system that may go into effect soon. We'll see. If it does, some of our tax money will go toward funding of abortion. Citizens of several states have petitioned their state governments to outlaw that in their states successfully. Michigan, a number of pro-life citizens in Michigan are trying to do that as well. I'm simply telling you that because we are going to offer you in the weeks to come, the opportunity to be part of that petition. You can if you want. For some reason, you don't want to. But that's respectful appeal to things that we find objectionable. And we always have that as an option. God's command to submit then is forthright, it's purposeful, 
It is limited. It is confined, though. And then lastly, it is comprehensive. Verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This attitude that is manifest in our willingness to submit to a government that we disagree with will show itself in a comprehensive way in our relationships with others. Showing respect. And the word respect there at the beginning of verse 17 is the same word as honor at the end of verse 17. You could translate that, show honor to everyone. Now notice, everyone includes people we don't agree with. People we don't approve of. I'm already in trouble, I'm sure, from some of you. So I may as well go for broke here. You know, there's a debate going on in our country about immigration. I don't know the solution to immigration. Uh, You don't either, by the way. But it's okay for you to have an opinion about it, and it's okay for me to have an opinion about it. But friends, as Christians first, and as Christians who first care about what God says, and honoring everyone, Make sure in the way you formulate your opinion about that issue or any other that you do not devalue the humanity of anyone made in the image of God. Be careful about the language you use, about those you disagree with, or those who are in this country in ways we don't agree with. They are still human beings made in the image of God, and we must address them that way, and at all times. This command is comprehensive. Show respect, honor to everyone. Love especially the family of believers. Your reverence for God will ultimately issue forth in your honoring others, loving the brethren, and submitting to the king as well. I say in your take-home truth, God commands us to submit to the government because he is the ultimate king. He commands us to submit to the government. Now notice, because he is the ultimate king. See, the reason I can submit to a government I don't like and don't approve of is because I know they're not the ultimate power. Have your day. Have your day, Nero. Have your day, Obama. Have your day, Putin. Have your day, Hillary. Have your day, whoever the Republican's going to be, and Lord knows who that'll be. Have your day. But the day now and the day then ultimately belongs to Jesus. And that's why I can submit. Because my life and my livelihood are not ultimately tied to the here and now and who's in charge. God says through Peter, that's a witness to the world because it makes it clear that these are citizens of another country. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for your penetrating words, your hard words. From your word, Lord, it is hard for me for us to submit 
for the reasons that you give us in Scripture and that we have seen in our own lives as our hearts are revealed in our daily interactions and our various relationships. We want our way. We want self-rule. We want autonomy. Thank you, Lord, that though it is hard, it is possible. Made possible because of the regenerating work of your Spirit in the hearts of those you have called out of the world and to yourself. Because of the sanctifying work of your Spirit and in your Word day by day. Lord, help us to contemplate what your Word has told us. And help us to put it into practice in the week to come. So that we will be lights shining in darkness for the glory of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.